0: This is from the Hekigang case 80. Zhaozhu's newborn baby. The case. Monk asked Zhaozhu, does a newborn baby also have the sixth consciousness? Zhaozhu said, it's like tossing a ball on swift flowing water. The monk also asked Tutsu, what is the meaning of tossing a ball on swift flowing water? Tutsu said, moment-to-moment, non-stop flow. The verse. Seeks consciousness, inactive, he puts forth a question. The adepts have both discerned where he's coming from. On the boundless, swift-flowing water, tossing a ball. Where it comes down, it doesn't stay. Who can watch it? Last week, last Sunday, we had a Shuso ceremony, Shuso hosting ceremony. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that, it's a ceremony where head trainee gives a talk and then faces directly each Sangha member that is present. It has to do with a question, comment, short dialogue. And what I said at the end of that is that, what I asked at the end of that is, what is why is it difficult for us to express ourselves directly? Why do we experience trepidations, second thoughts, third, fourth, fifth thoughts? Who are we trying to appease? What are we worried about? Or maybe more importantly, what are we waiting for? You know, we think we have to sound like Zen practitioners, look like something. We read a lot about, hear a lot about the Dharma, the practice, train. And it's, a, it's very effective, but it's also, it could be dangerous because we could get trapped. Or we could trap ourselves by practice, through the practice. So the question is, what is direct expression? What does it come from? How can we respond with immediacy? Or how could we be disciplined without being uptight, with uh, being lighthearted and disciplined? Sounds a little like dichotomy, right? If I'm lighthearted, I am loose, too relaxed. Right, disciplined. You have to be uptight. But is that true? Is that true? My right effort in this. O sensei, the founder of Aikido, said this, Now and again, it is necessary to seclude yourself among deep mountains and hidden valleys to restore your link to the source of life. Breathe in and let yourself soar to the ends of the universe. Breathe out and bring the cosmos back inside. Next, breathe up all fecundity and vibrancy of the earth. Finally, blend the breath of heaven and the breath of earth with your own, becoming the breath of life itself. What does that mean and how do we express that? It is so much bigger than our own little story-making, story-weaving minds to unite, to blend, to become one with. So here we are. Secluded within the mountains, working on restoring the link to the source of life, learning how to unite our breath with the breath of the universe. Maybe learn how to deepen our trust in the vast unknown. It's a great way to to spend a few days, isn't it? It sounds good, but is it what we experience? Or is it what we're doing while we're here? Or is there a discrepancy between how it sounds and how each one of us experiences this? You now when we drive up the mountain, drive up here, it's a beautiful driveway. Right? Following the stream. Going up to this incredible place. You know, and as we drive up, we slow down. Right? We feel as if the, the lungs are expanding. Allowing more oxygen to flow in. Maybe becoming in touch with something. Maybe the breath becomes less choppy, deeper, smoother. And it's incredible. But with that, alongside, maybe we recognize another sense of arising trepidations to some extent. Maybe some restlessness, some concerned energy that accompanies us as we drive up. And that becomes, it seems to become louder and louder as things become more quiet, as the surroundings become more serene. You know, especially coming from city-like life, suburb, high-paced, You know, people often complain about and feel burdened by the demands, the pace, the loudness of everyday life and wish to take a break from all of it. But when such a time comes and there is stillness and quiet, then what? What do we do with it? Do we know how to be when we're given the gift of quiet and stillness? To what degree do we actually allow ourselves to be thrusted into eternal silence, all-encompassing silence? You know, I think sometimes the silence seemed louder than the noise. We may be trying to get away from. I remember when I was in eighth grade, we moved from Tel Aviv, from the city, to a, small, a smaller village surrounded by orange groves. It's much more quiet than the previous neighborhood. And my father used to joke with his friends that he had to turn on the mixer to fall asleep. It's too quiet. I think it was partially joking. I think the restlessness shows up in our face much more when we don't have displacement activities, when we don't have something to run to, we don't have a gadget to look into a TV to turn on, a phone to pick up and make a phone call. When we're surrounded by magnificent beauty, what do we do with it? It Seems as if there's a dichotomy, right? We long for silence and at the same time, deep down, we find it threatening. What makes this place so wonderful that it offers the opportunity to experience why we long for silence? Why? It feels like home. And why are we threatened by it? What do we find so comforting and familiar? And what is it that is threatening? You know, this this journey we call Zen training is, is a strange journey. Unlike conventional journeys, this one actually goes backwards. We shed instead of add. We put down the heavy load, get quiet, get still, so we get a chance to see how we create extras, how we burden our lives. We get a chance to recognize that although the extras often seem necessary, helpful, they only obscure and hinder. As Lao Tzu said, the practice of the way consists of daily losing. Moment by moment, losing, shedding, lightening up. The beautiful thing about Zen practice is that it offers a, a resting place from which we can witness the thought formation, the weaving. Witness and do nothing about it. We don't have to do anything about it other than just witness. To bear witness, you know, bearing witness is a very common phrase in Buddhism. When We, we often use it in terms of bearing witness to the cries of the world, suffering of others. But we bear witness to our thoughts too. We bear witness to our emotions, memories. We bear witness to all of it. Experience it. Open up to it. Very much the same as we work on opening up to the cries of the world. Not shielding ourselves against We also want to open up to what comes and goes within us. Not worry about it, not fear it, not try to run away from it or shield ourselves from it. Embrace it fully and do nothing about it. Fits very well with our theme for this angle, right? We chose to work on right effort. What is right effort? Right, as I mentioned before, this is not about becoming more efficient, more pro- productive. Although this may happen as a byproduct, that's not what it's about. You know, that The hidden secret in practicing right effort is that it's nothing more than correct practice. And correct practice is nothing more than moment-by-moment moment flow. It's actually a lot more simple than we make it. Moment-by-moment moment, non-stop flow is what we long for. And it is what we are afraid of. Since birth, we have been accumulating so much extra baggage. Now we have an assumption or assumptions that we have to carry it around wherever we go. And think about it. By doing so, how much energy, how much effort we waste lugging around so much baggage and also how much attention is there in us for what's going on when we worry about making sure that the luggage stays on top we tied it up very well it gets loosened up Tied up again. And then we add to that as we go along, day after day, week after week, year after year, more and more and more to carry around. No wonder that as we grow older and older, we become more sedentary, heavier, unless. We examine unless we look, unless we practice. A monk once asked Zhaozhu, I have emptied out my mind. What should I do now? And Zhu said, throw it away. The monk said, well, I have nothing there. What should I throw away? And Zia Zhu said, then carry it away. Carry it away, carry it around. That's an option too. And we're here to, to shed the extra. What we practice so we can shed the extra. But if we're not extremely careful in the process of shedding, we can actually take on another kind of burden. Call it Zen. And the advice is simple, actually. You know, if you are carrying something, throw it away. If you're carrying nothing, throw it away. You know, Zen can become a new jacket, a new way to, a new veneer to put on, to hide behind, to cover ourselves with. And it's not so much that there is something to let go of. It's more about what is it in us that wants to hold on. Because if I let go of one thing without examining the tendency to hold on, I will very quickly hold on to something else. It's, an autom- it's a reflex, actually, to hold on. Remember, I have a student who used to do karate for years. He's an older guy. And from punching for many years... His hand became naturally fisted like that. And he had to get surgery to open up the lower knuckles, the, the nerves, to create an opening so he can actually open his hand more freely. Right? It just it just became clenched like that. It would close automatically. Why? Because of habits because we grasp because we hold on because we think we have to we don't even know that we think we have to right? so we think well I practice Zen and I will free myself it sounds great and it actually does work but we have to be very careful Rather than become too attached to something new, we have to watch how or from where do we function? What is fueling us? What is moving us? What does it mean to unite your breath with the breath of the universe? And what happens when your breath or our breath is divided from the breath of the universe? What kind of fears arise? What kind of trepidations? And how does that burden the speech, the direct expression? Should I say something? Should I be quiet? What should I do? Who cares? Someone cares deeply. Someone wants to make sure that I do the right thing, I say the right thing, others approve. Right? Very common. The practice is asking to shed it all and put nothing new on. And it's scary. It's scary to walk around naked. Why? Because I have experiences. And my experiences taught me that I have to watch out. I have to cover up. I have to put a head on a head. When I come home, close the doors, the windows, the blinds, I can remove that head and then maybe then I can be. Before I open the door, before I open the windows, I got to put it on. Tell the world, this is who I am. Convince myself, this is who I am. that right effort? Suzuki said, the most important point in our practice is to have right or perfect effort. Right effort directed in the right direction is necessary. If your effort is headed in the wrong direction, especially if you're not aware of it, it is deluded effort. Our effort in our practice should be directed from achievement to non-achievement. Going backwards. Not what we are taught. Not what we think we should be doing. Not accumulating. And he says, usually when you do something, you want to achieve something. You attach to some result. From achievement to non-achievement means to be rid of the unnecessary and bad results or effort. If you do something in the spirit of non-achievement, there is a good quality in it. So just to do something without any particular effort is enough. When you make some special effort to achieve something, Some excessive quality, some extra element is involved in it. You should get rid of excessive things. If your practice is good, without being aware of it, you will become proud of your practice. That pride is extra. That's one of the extras we have to carry around. What you do is good, but something more is added to it. So you should get rid of that something which is extra. This point is very, very important, he says. But usually we are not subtle enough to realize it. And we go in the wrong direction. But that has a lot to do with refinement, continuous refinement. Continuous practice. It doesn't matter how long one year, five years, 40 years, 50 years, a lifetime. Totally irrelevant. There's always further. There's always more refinement. Because the hand closes automatically. Because often we're not even aware of the tendency. But the tendencies that we have, that we have developed over the years. So Suzuki says we need to go from achievement to non-achievement. Which is actually the same as going backwards from adulthood to infancy. Yeah, we have accumulated a lot. Maybe feel proud about Maybe hang it on the wall. Create things, sign our names on it. Here's what I've done. Here's my worth. My value. Here's what the world thinks of me or what the world should think of me based on the procedures, right? Based on the rules. All right, so we have to go back to infancy and it's challenging right because the adult that prides himself by accumulated knowledge and experiences sees infancy as a lesser state of being I work so hard to get to where I'm at why would I want to regress Everything I know is based on that. Everything I am is based on that. Why would I want to give it up? You know, it's actually not that complicated to see that the knowledge of an infant is by far greater than the knowledge of an adult. just think about ourselves if we did not have the knowledge we had at birth would we be able to function basic functioning would anything be accumulated could we move could we blink the eyes could we eat could we sleep When did we learn to do all this? What did it take? Which school did we have to go? What diploma did we have to get? To breathe? To take a deep breath? Right? But everybody does that, so, you know. What good is it? I want to be different. I want to be better. I want to be more valuable. The knowledge that we have received at birth, what kind of knowledge is that? In the commentary, it says comment this Quran. it says a person who studies the path must become again like an infant then praise and blame success and fame unfavorable circumstances unfavorable environments none of this can move him because that's after that's extra at the level of an infant doesn't matter because an infant doesn't value. We did not value what we value today. We were at that state. We actually are at that state. We just forget. Or we get distracted by some noise that tell us to trust something else. And we believe it. And we obey it. And we give everything we've got for that. He says, though his eyes see forms, he is the same as a blind person. Though his ears hear sound, he is the same as a deaf person. He is like a fool, like an idiot. His mind is motionless as Mount Sumeru. This is the place where patriarch monks really and truly acquire power. To be like an idiot. But well, we don't think of babies like that, do we? Oh, maybe we do. I don't know. You know, we look at the baby and we don't realize what incredible wisdom What incredible, incredible wisdom just to be this way, to function this way, without having to be taught. And again, without that wisdom, we could achieve nothing. Do nothing. Do we actually value it? Think about it. Think about everything that was weighing you down right now. At this point in your life. At this point in your life. And then ask, where is it when you look at the basic functioning of sitting, lying down, walking around, eating, taking a, going to the bathroom, taking a shower, waking up, cleaning the floor, doing laundry? Of course we can answer the question. But where do we have to go to answer that question? Or what do we have to abandon and leave behind in order to answer the question? The question of what is it that's burdening me? What is it that's sitting on me? Or what is hindering? What do we turn away from? Is that going to or towards uniting our breath with the breath of the universe? or away from it. When our breath is united with the breath of the universe, there's plenty of power to carry all our little, tiny, small, minute issues the burdens. Can we allow that to carry it rather than us carrying it? When the attention is merged with the natural, moment-by-moment expression of this body, what is lacking? What can be missing. You know, most of our all our basic expressions, most of what we do is, as human beings, right? All of it is derived from infancy. It comes from there. Yet we rarely pay attention or give it any value. This is a person who studies the path must become again like an infant. Right? it's the infant the primordial that's blinking the eyes breathing being My Zumbi Roshi used to say that you're doing it anyway you might as well appreciate it you remember that and if we don't look at that deeply it may sound like He's saying to make lemonade out of lemons. Well, you're doing it, you might as well appreciate it because that's it. It's as good as it gets. But no, that's not what this means. It's about recognizing and appreciating the most fundamental aspects of our existence. You're breathing anyway. Do you appreciate it? You're blinking the eye anyway. Do you give it any attention? Do you value it? Do you recognize that while the mind is churning and moving and weaving and creating and worrying, all this is happening? All this is carrying you forward. Allowing you to squander your life if you want. Worry about things. Create suffering for yourself and for others. It's all there. Thrown open. If only we pay attention. only we could value this instead of what we conventionally value, right? Because usually what we value, what we are taught to value, has to do with cumulative knowledge, wealth, education, looks, appearances. That's what we value. But what happens when I value myself based on those parameters What does that do to the growing sense of discrimination? How do I look at others? I don't just look at myself this way. We look at each other this way. If I'm unable to value wisdom, birth wisdom, in me, in myself, in the way I function, how can I value that in another? How can I aspire to experience equanimity if I do not see that? If all I see is what's arising and vanishing? If all I see is what is accumulated and what can be lost? Maybe I can tweak it here and there, but at the end of the day, unless I experience that in my own life, unless I value that in my own life, I cannot value that in another. And what we're doing is extremely important. What we're studying is extremely important because when we study the self, we study everything. And everyone. And when we appreciate being, we appreciate everything and everyone. And it's, again, more simple than we make it. Not, Not simple in terms of I got it. That would be the extra of I got something. It's simple in the sense of it has no I got something or I got nothing. The monk in this case didn't just ask about the state of infancy. He specifically asked if a baby is born with the sixth consciousness what is the sixth consciousness? Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, We practice meditation to train the mind in direct perception, in correct perception. When we meditate, we look deeply into our perceptions in order to find out their nature and to discover the elements that are correct and the elements that are incorrect. If you're not mindful, you will believe that your perceptions which are based on prejudices that have been developed from the seeds of past experiences in your store consciousness, are correct. When we have a wrong perception and continue to maintain it, we hurt ourselves and others. In fact, people kill one another over their different perceptions of the same reality. We kill each other because we don't understand or we don't see or we don't experience equanimity. And it begins and ends with our own exploration. Actually, it begins and ends here. With this kind of work. In the Yogacara school, it says, in order to understand this process better, we need to look at the teachings of the Yoga Chala school, which, has, which was an early Mahayana school, Study the nature of consciousness, also referred to as mind-only, or consciousness-only school. And according to the Yoga Chala school, our mind has eight aspects, or we can say eight consciousnesses. The first five are based on physical senses. They are the consciousnesses that arise when your eyes see form, ears hear sound, nose smell, an odor, tongue taste something, or our skin touches an object. The sixth mind consciousness arises when our mind contacts an object of perception. The seventh, called manas, is the part of consciousness that gives rise to and is the support of the sixth one, the mind consciousness. And the eighth consciousness is the ground or base of the other seven consciousnesses. It is also called alaya or the storehouse consciousness. Now we can leave that for another talk. There's a lot to be said about that, about the store consciousness. But the point or the question is for us: when we look into this little bit of background of Buddhist psychology, can we hear about it? Does it clarify? Does it help? Not that we shouldn't study it, but does it help? Or does it complicate in terms of moment by moment breathing, functioning, being, exploring? Right? Because I wanted to to look at how we how we study. Do we study as a way to support exploration or do we study as a way to accumulate as a way to feel better about what we do not know before or what what we do know now. So back to the monk in commentary says that this monk knew the ideas of the verbal teachings So he used them to question Zhaozhou by saying does a newborn baby also have the Sixth Consciousness or not? And he says although a newborn baby is equipped with the Sixth Consciousness though his eyes can see and his ears can hear he doesn't yet discriminate among the Sixth Sense Objects. He does not yet discriminate. right? Because at that level all is one. Actually, all is experienced as one. Which is a very important point in understanding that the practice is actually going backwards to that state that we were already at. We were already at. We have it. We know it. A different way. It's not cumulative, knowledge birthright knowledge does not yet discriminate at this time he knows nothing of good and evil long or short right or wrong gain or loss very clear isn't it it's so sad right that we We are born knowing it. What do we do with it? What happens? How do we get to this state? How do we become so confused that we actually have to practice and do all this to experience what's already there? What can't be lost actually, maybe more importantly, to experience what we cannot lose. Now, people often say, I want to find, I want to, I'm looking for this, I'm looking, I'm looking for myself, I want to find myself, I want to find Mu. Right? And all this comes from a basic assumption that I lost something. I have to venture out to look for it, to find it. But this is about being. How can we lose it? We can only lose what we hold on to. But we can't lose the hand. But we have to trust it. Now we are born with the inherent capacity to see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, but the complications, entanglements, actually are not found in what's inherent. They're created through the way we use what's inherent. Right? You know, we chant, this is the pure land, up to us to make it so. Do whatever we want with this. This ground will support whatever you decide to do. Hug each other, kill each other ground will support. The ground will absorb the blood readily without arguing. That's that ground. That's that universe. The breath of the universe. The ground of the universe. And that's what we need to merge with. Or to go back to being merged with or to realize that we are already merged. We live our lives as if we're not merged, as if we are detached, alienated from the source. And because we believe we're alienated from the source, we go looking for it. Right? And this is why Zazen is so incredible, because It's the opposite. Stop moving. Stop searching. Sit down. And be and experience what you are. Not what you want to be. Just what you are. Just experience it. Rest in it. Allow it to support you. Don't follow your thoughts. Don't follow your emotions. How do we use the inherent? You know, we we create so much over our life, so much, and then we fall in love with our own creations, our own cherished ideas, the mental formations, It's a kind of practice of falling out of love with ourselves or with what we hold on to and believe to be true. It's a practice of falling out of love. Maybe that's better than calling it Zen. Just stop loving yourself. See what happens. Stop loving your ideas, your opinions. It is the fundamental that allows us to do all this, so we have to go back to the fundamental. We have to go back to experience, to experiencing that which allows us to wreak havoc. In the Upanishads, a collection of ancient Indian texts, it is said. It's not that which the eye can see, but that by which the eye can see. Know that to be the fundamental reality. Not what people here cherish. Not that which the ear can hear, but that by which the ear can hear. Know that to be the fundamental reality. Not what people here cherish. Not that which speech can illuminate, but that by which speech can be illuminated. Know that to be the fundamental reality. Not that by which the mind can think, but that by which the mind thinks. Know that to be the fundamental reality. It's not where we go, it's how we go. It's how the legs move. This is what we need to study. Not scientifically. But this is what we need to study. How can I do this? How can I tie my shoes with those ten fingers? Isn't that amazing? How does it work so beautifully? What makes it work so beautifully? Was that born with me? Does that die when I die? Does it begin and end with my form, with my existence, or what I call my existence? ancient said my patched garment covering my head, myriad concerns cease. At this time, I don't understand anything at all. Only if you can be like this, you will have a small share of attainment. Only if you can be like an idiot, you will have a small share of attainment. Only if we can just stop paying attention, so much attention, to what we believe to be true to what we defend, protect. Just stop doing it for a while. And open and open and open further. And allow the world to carry us. Only then, he says, you will have a small share of attainment. And he says, though an adept is like this, nevertheless, he cannot be fooled at all. He is without deceit and without clinging thoughts. He is like the sun and moon moving through the sky without ever stopping and without saying, I have so many names and forms." He is like the sky everywhere covering, like the earth everywhere supporting. Since they have no mind, they bring up and nurture myriad things without saying, I have so many accomplishments. Since sky and earth are mindless, they last forever. What has, mind, what has mind has limits. A person who has attained the path is like this too. In the midst of no activity, he carries out his activities, accepting all unfavorable and Favorable circumstances with a compassionate heart. Why? Because the breath is united with the breath of the universe. Because it's unborn and undying. Because it's beyond our small concerns. And this is where the great Zhaozhu. Joshua, functions. This is the description of his attainment, his functioning. And so he's able to fit the occasion and answer the monk's question by saying, it's like tossing a ball on swift flowing water. But is are talking about the newborn baby? Is he referring to the monk himself? Or is he pointing at us? Or any question we can't possibly think of? Hakuin praised Zhao Zhu's answer here and he said, he has a lot of breasts producing sweet and sour at will. There is no explanation to this. It is verbal samadhi, he says, Hakuin says. Verbal samadhi. Oh, Jesus and my, the life, the playfulness of samadhi. It is verbal samadhi because when a ball is tossed on swift flowing water it is ceaseless. It is continuous. It has no fixed point. What a great way to sum up the Buddha's teachings. Swift ball. Constant flow. Not stopping for a second. Even Zazen, even what we call stillness, we're not stopping anything. We're just observing. And if you observe deep enough, you see that nothing ever stops. Only thing that stops is our own creations, or creating. Commentaries, interpretations, extras, stuff we carry around. Actually, that's the only thing we can do. We have no choice about continuous flow. It's not up to us. We are merged, we are flowing regardless of whether or not we realize it. Also, we are there, regardless of whether or not we realize it. If you remember what I quoted yesterday from Rinzai, if you cannot find it here, you cannot find it anywhere. Of course. Because you're never going to be anywhere else. Or be anything else. And as long as we reject, we reject. When we stop rejecting, there it is. Where did it come from? Where was it? So the monk apparently didn't get it, and later on asked another teacher, Tutsu, what is the meaning of tossing a ball on swift flowing water? And Tutsu said, moment by moment, non-stop flow. And Tutsu actually was a contemporary of Zhaju, about 40 years younger. They were both very important teachers. One time, the two of them had a short Dharma encounter, and Zhaju ended it by saying to Tutsu, I've long committed thievery, but you are worse than me. You're a much greater thief than I am. You know, Zen masters, these masters were known to be thieves who would steal what we have come to love and cherish just to show us that there is nothing upon which to rely, just to show us the truth. So much love, so much compassion, so much care. my compassionate stealing in the verse it says the adepts both discern where he's coming from and it's referring to Jaju and Tutsu who saw through them all who stole away the question by showing him that it's essentially baseless as all our questions are actually I'm not saying we shouldn't ask I'm just saying we should inquire about our questions. Now, Tutsu, or Tuzi Tatong, which is another name, once said this. He entered the hall and addressed the monk, saying... All of you come here searching for some new words or phrases, collecting brilliant things that you intend to stick in your own mouth and repeat. But this old monk's energy is failing, and my lips are, and tongue are blundering. I don't have any idle talk to give you. If you ask me, then I will answer you directly. But there is no mystery that can be compared to you yourself. Sounds like rinside, doesn't it? I call it yes. You want to know the Buddha, he said. is none other than the one who is here listening to my talk. That's Linji, Rizai. So Tutsi said, I won't teach you some method to collect wisdom. I will never say that above and below there is a Buddha, a Dharma, something ordinary or something sacred, or that you will find it by sitting with your legs crossed. You all manifest a thousand things. It is the understanding that arises from your own life that you must carry into the future, reaping what you sow. I have nothing to give you here, neither overtly nor by inference. I can only speak to all of you in this manner. If you have doubts, then question me. The monk came forward and said, when it's not received overtly or by inference, then what? And Tzu answered, are you trying to accumulate wisdom? Are you trying to accumulate wisdom? We can't help it. Yeah, but we hear it. It's clear. It's to the point. And then the mind moves. And the second the mind moves, it's gone. That's why I mentioned last week that when we have Dharma encounters, We got to be swift. We got to be to the point. We can't allow the mind to take over. Because it will very quickly. It will rule the moment and rule the day and rule our lives, actually. That's why in many koans, in many dialogues, speak, speak. Ah, missed it. Too late. We missed it. It's very important, especially when we have practice of Dharma encounter. We can't just think about it. Because thinking is moving away from it. And not only that, actually. You know, We practice to clarify. We practice to go back home to the primordial. And when we go to the thoughts, we actually get away from that or from trusting that we go back to what we trust give me a moment I'll get right back to you about what it's not a mathematical equation right just do this oh yeah I can do that how I don't know that's the mystery that's the mystery that we are. That's the mystery that we squander. For the sake of what is the question, right? For the sake of what? We can't find it. We can only. Realize it and express it. We can't understand it either, but we can experience and express. We all express it. We have to realize it. As the saying goes, the meal has long been cooked. The meal has long been cooked. Perfectly fine, just as we are at birth. So this is our journey. A journey back to the moment of birth. Let's help each other. Let's keep that sashine tight, let's keep the container tight, make sure that we don't leak somebody, work on cultivating it, without being uptight about it, when pain comes, pain comes. It's just that. It doesn't come with commentaries. It doesn't say, what am I doing here? I should be somewhere else. It's just pain. When joyfulness comes, joyfulness comes. Non-stop flow. It keeps changing. And our job is to not create anything out of it. That's all. We're up for that, right? That's why we're here.